Hello, and welcome to Rippercast, your podcast on the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 15, Paul Begg, A to Z. I'm Jonathan Mangus from Topeka, Kansas. Joining me today from Virginia is Allie Ryder, and Robert McLaughlin is in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And Paul Begg is from Maidenstone in Kent in the UK. Paul has been a co-host on a number of shows of Rippercast, but today he is our guest. Welcome, Mr. Begg, and thank you for coming on. Hello to all of you. It's uh, a bit of a worry to be on the other end of the uh, the grilling. Yes, I know you're in the hot seat today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Paul Begg is the author of Jack the Ripper, The Facts, which was published as The Uncensored Facts in 1990, and then rewritten and published in 2000. He is also the author of The Definitive History and co-author of 2000. Uh, I guess the definitive history count 2003 uh, Scotland Yard Files he co-authored with Keith Skinner as well as the A to Z with Keith Skinner and Martin Fido the A to Z is expected to be republished with many updates in the near future uh, Paul is also editor at large for Ripperologist magazine Paul uh, how did you first become interested in the Whitechapel murders um that's a difficult question to answer because I vaguely remember seeing uh, a program um, oh, way back in, in, the, in the 60s and it was, uh, I don't know why I would have seen it because it was a, a late night program and, uh, and I think it was just a, an insert in a, in a discussion program. Uh, and I'd, uh, I was interested in the Ripper uh, just basically because I was interested in historical mysteries and it was a historical mystery. Um, and then I think probably like most people I think the first book I read was that I I remember distinctly reading was Donald McCormick's The Identity of Jack the Ripper which I found totally incomprehensible at the time and then Stephen Knight's book which I I found uh, extraordinarily uh, extraordinarily readable Um, and my interest really was because uh, having been born and bred in Cardiff and, and at that stage still living there and Mary Kelly having connections with Cardiff, I started going through the, the Western Mail uh, and, um, and getting copies of, of Kelly's, uh, the, the, the accounts of the Kelly murder from the Western Mail. Then, gradually, it, we were getting towards the, uh, the centenary. The, the Uncensored Facts actually came out in, 19, uh, sorry, in, in 1988. Uh, it was the only book, I think, that actually came out in the centenary year. All the others had, had come out uh, fortunately for me, uh, in, in 1987. And as we were getting towards the centenary, I, I realized that nobody had uh, had actually done a blow-by-blow account of, of, of the Ripper crimes themselves. So that uh, at that time, I think, even Don's book, uh, I, I mean, I just off the top of my head, so he can all run away and check it, but I think it's something like about one-fifth of the length of the book is actually devoted to a discussion of the crimes themselves. Um, the rest of is, is devoted to a discussion of virtually all the suspects, and, uh, and Don obviously doesn't then come forward and put his own suspect forward, but uh, he went on and discussed plays and, uh, and Jack the Ripper in the movies and things like that. So I really wanted to do a book that was about the, the who saw and said what, where, and when and, and actually dispense with the suspects altogether. And I only included um, 
uh, Druitt, Kosminski and Ostrog really because the McNaughton Memoranda was one of the contemporary documents uh, from the period and so it kind of had to be included but I certainly didn't uh, didn't intend to, to to come down on any suspect and I, frankly I don't think I did so when I sent the manuscript off I called the book Jack the Ripper the Facts because if I'd been doing a book about the suspects or the theories then I would have called it Jack the Ripper the theories or Jack the Ripper the suspects or Jack the Ripper in the movies or whatever but as I was trying to deal with the facts I called it Jack the Ripper the Facts and the publisher inserted for some obscure reason um, the word uncensored which I never liked and never wanted but I didn't have the clout to go up against the marketing department and, uh, and say well look, I don't want this and I don't think uh, I had the clout to do that either when, when I did the revised and updated edition, but um, I just think they <laughs> they just let me get rid of Uncensored, I think maybe by that time they saw that it wasn't really all that sensible. Um, and so the book came out when it was revised as, as just plain Jack Rip the Facts. That's um, the story of uh, of getting into doing that. How long did it take you to write it? Well, I think it probably took uh, the best part of a year to, to, of, of physical writing, but that involved a good degree of research because um, as soon as I had got the contract to, to do the book, I then went out and bought all the files and got copies of the files from, of the, from the public record office, the, the Scotland Yard and the Home Office files. And I think Stuart and I are probably the only people who did that um, not unsurprisingly, because it cost over a thousand pounds, which twenty years ago was i mean a thousand pounds now is a lot of money in them but uh twenty years ago it was a considerable amount of money and so I got all that material and I was incorporating all of that stuff as I was writing, so it was um it was a fairly labor intensive exercise um paul did you uh know anybody at the time like to help you with your research I, I know you were a writer um, before the uncensored facts but uh, uh, did you know any of the leading people in the ripper field at the time that you started your uh, research into the book no absolutely none at all um, and I had a little little bookshelf that that now wouldn't uh, wouldn't contain um, half the collection well nowhere near the collection but it had uh, my, my copy of, uh, of Cullen and Fasten and, uh, and uh, Robin O'Dell's book and Dodd's book and so forth. And I, and I thought, oh, you know, it's quite exciting. One day I will be, I'll have a book there with, with, with these people. And that, that was great. Um, but no, I didn't. In the course of writing, because uh, Keith and Martin's book um, or books had come out prior to mine. I I cannot now remember. I think, I think I contacted Keith because he hadn't got Druitt's mother's medical records, and I, by some quirk <coughs> of, of of luck or good fortune, had managed to find them. And how the hell I found them and, and Keith didn't is is remains a mystery to both of us to this day. And I think I contacted Keith um, to to. You know, let let him have this this information, and and so we, that, that's how Keith and I got got talking. I think he'd met Martin, and that's how Martin and I got to know each other as well. So, in the process of uh, to, towards the, the very end of doing the book, yes, I, I mean, I had um, I had Keith and Martin, and, and Keith did supply me with uh, 
with uh, research that he'd done, which they hadn't, uh, which, which he hadn't incorporated in the Ripper Legacy with Martin Howells. So I was extremely lucky in that respect. Um, you in you had mentioned that um, you don't um, single out any specific suspect in the book, The Facts, um, but um, you do uh, spend a lot of time talking about. Aaron Kosminski, or at least the Kosminski that is mentioned in the Swanson um, in, uh, document. Um, can you give us an idea of um, of who you think the uh, strongest police suspect is, was at the t- or is is now? Well, uh, I th- I'll, I'll just preface my remarks by saying first of all that yep, um, when it came to writing the. Uh, when I was doing the uncensored facts, uh, Martin's book came out, and it was Martin who really made the connection between, uh, and in a big way. I mean, I'd, I'd kind of figured that that uh, Anderson here we've got Anderson talking about a Polish Jew, and here we've got McNaughton talking about a Polish Jew called Kuzminski, and I thought maybe they were one and the same. But Martin's book came out, and he made the big uh, claim that that uh, Kuzminski was Anderson's suspect, and or I'll rephrase that because obviously he didn't. He went on to say David Cohen was Anderson's suspect, but you know what I mean. I mean, he he, he identified uh, Aaron Kosminski as being Polish Jew and went set out to uh, to track him down uh, in the medical records. And towards the the end of the writing of my book, uh, the Swanson marginalia came to light, so I had a chance to 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 see that and incorporate all of that. So that tended to make the chapter a little bit longer uh, in. Um, in the uncensored facts, and thereafter, of course, an inordinate amount of effort has actually gone into trying to prove that Aaron Kosminski wasn't the suspect, or that Anderson was talking through his backside, and, and so forth. So, it kind of made the chapter on Kosminski in, in the facts to be far longer than I would personally have wanted it to be, and and um, also put considerable length uh, and wordage into the book, which made it a lot fatter than uh, than it would otherwise have been. And unfortunately, it kind of branded me along the line of being Kosminskiite, which I'm not. Which leads me to the, the second part, of really, or the main part of your question, is that um, I think that Kosminski is the main suspect now, is, is the top, top of the, the totem pole of suspects, simply because you have uh, Anderson and Swanson both senior officers at the time, both very well informed, uh, basically saying that he was. Now, I don't know whether they were right or whether they were wrong, and I have a feeling that they were probably wrong, but I think from the research point of view, uh, Kosminski's got to be the one that we look at most closely, just if, if, if for no other reason than to, to, to shift him out of the frame, to get rid of him. Right. So, that's... When people ask me, you know, who do you think Jack the Ripper was, I invariably say either I don't know or I say, well, I don't know, but Sir Robert Anderson, who was there at the CID at the time of the murders, so on and so on and so on, which uh, isn't necessary. But with, for the most most part, you, you, you can't, when somebody asks you that question, you can't go into all the um, ins and outs and, and problems and, and everything else associated with, with that uh, suspect. Now, when you say that if it wasn't Kosminski, it, you then you just don't know. Um, mm. Do you? Um, is there a type 
that that you would lean towards? Um, I mean, would it be someone like him? Um, would it be a Polish Jew? Uh, I mean, do you, would, do you favor another named police suspect, or or, or or are you more leaning towards it being in the quote-unquote unknown local man, um, Polish Jew type that kind of gets characterized if you know if a if someone isn't set on a certain suspect. Well, I certainly don't think that uh, if it wasn't Aaron Kosminski, then it's got to be some other Polish Jew knocking around. I mean, although um, you, I mean that 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 is a separate sort of argument in which, which drags in things like David Cohen and, and the confusion hypothesis and and things like that. Um, but I, I must admit that I think the chances are that, that um, if the police didn't know who Jack the Ripper was, or if, 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 if the suspect didn't fall within, within the ken of the police at the time, then the likelihood is, is that Jack the Ripper was just one of the many uh, local people uh, who shifted from DOS house to DOS house they they would they didn't carry the records that we carry today and it's quite likely that he probably died in a in a in a common lodging house unknown unsuspected unmourned and and we will never know who it was um, I think that that's basically it I, I, there are all these other suspects but you have to if you're looking for a police suspect it's either one of the the the, the many that they they investigated, most of whom I would suspect that we have no idea who they were. Um, and that would be it. Um, along those lines of uh, police suspects, um, you know, it's, it seems that, uh, oh, 20, 30, 40 years ago, uh, police suspects uh, were most focused on. Uh, you know, whether it be Farson or other people. Mm. And uh, um, today, uh, Many uh, many modern writers on the subject are sort of uh, dismissive of the police suspects and of McNaught and Anderson and Swanson and Warren as well. And I was just wondering of your take on that. Does that say anything about? <coughs> well, I think that the the I think what really when you look at at Jack the Ripper, the, the fact it was the theme of a of a talk I just gave at the the Docklands exhibition along with Stuart and, and Robin O'Dell um, and I was saying there that I, I think that when you look at the way that the, the the Ripper developed from Matters through to McCormick in each of those cases you have the author consciously or I think probably unconsciously trying to put a face to the Ripper they're, they're trying, trying just to throw light on the Ripper by giving him uh, some sort of uh, occupation, which uh, or, or whatever, that explained why the crimes were being committed. In the case of of Dr. Stanley, for example, um, Matters was just giving us the story of a of a crazed doctor seeking to avenge the untimely death uh, of his son. Now, that kind of uh, was designed to to lessen the fear of the Ripper, lessen the, the this lurker in the shadows that we can't protect ourselves against. It was uh, an attempt, really, to say, "Well, look, you know, everybody else was safe from this guy, uh, except those people who were uh, connected with the woman who caused the son to die." And the same goes uh, go, goes through with uh, with others. In, in the case of William Stewart, for example, it's, it's a midwife trying to cover up uh, uh, botched abortions. Through to McCormick, that it's a whole bunch of uh, it's, it's got all to do with Russia, 
which at the time was, was a was a, a major um, news concern at the time, what with the, with the Cold War and everything else. Then along came Farson, and what uh, in 1959 with the Farson's Guide to the British Television Program, in which he was able to uh, identify. Uh, drew it because he had obviously he found the McNaughton Memoranda with, from Lady Abbott Conway uh, at that point of course it, it, it changed the whole thing because it made it look as if it was possible that we might the police might really have had some idea who Jack the Ripper was and that's carried on and then Don came along with, uh, with a, a complete uh, account of the crimes which was non-suspect orientated altogether and there was Stephen then came in with uh, with the Royal Conspiracy and changed changed the whole thing again because it uh, made the Ripper a, a kind of worldwide phenomenon. Uh, Stephen Knight and Doctor Stowell being the the the, uh, the goal uh, and and the Duke of Clarence, and so uh, it all changed. I, and I think it's it's now got to the point where we've done the facts side of things and and uh, books are coming along which which uh, where yes where people are looking at those police suspects and, and being a little bit dismissive of them and I'm not quite sure which way it's going to go now I, I think we're seeing a lot of specialist books coming up looking at specific aspects of the case and uh, those of course are being made even more available um, through through uh, self-publishing uh, but uh, I'm not sure what the the theme will be for, from from here on in. You mentioned that uh, you recently did a talk in the Jocklands Museum, and recently there's been some uh, questions about the treatment of the victims at the Docklands Museum. Once again, speaking of specialist areas, um, Neil Sheldon's book came out dealing with um, the victims, and he's somewhat upset about the lack of respect shown to the victims. I guess that would be a good way of phrasing it. What do you think, as someone who has seen and talked, spoken at the Docklands uh, exhibit, well, how do you how do you view it? Do you think that the victims were given their fair shake? Um, to be honest, I'd, I'd, it's difficult to answer that question because I, I went around the exhibit and I can't say that I was struck by anything that was wrong. Um, maybe I maybe I was just blind to it, or you know maybe because Neil is is so involved with the victims, maybe he just just homed in on something that uh, that escaped my attention altogether. Uh, so I can't really comment on that. Whether, but but it, certainly, I mean, I think the exhibition is is an excellent exhibition. I'm not so keen on the book, but I think the exhibition is 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 very good. I think it's, um, it's got great stuff in it. Um, further to that, uh, do you think that there's any chance of uh, a permanent type of display that, that maybe both uh, the public and researchers could use? I, I would very much doubt it. Um, the trouble is, it seems to me, is that um, is, it is, is the fact that the records and the material that they've got there have been loaned from so many different different places and indeed some of the documents that are on loan from the public record office uh, they can only be on loan for three months so they're going to have to for a while some of those documents are genuine and some are facsimiles and cleanly, clearly marked as such and then the real ones will go back and, and the ones that are currently facsimiles the, the real documents will replace those so to actually get a, a, 
a permanent exhibition, I think, would, would probably, in, in those circumstances, would be almost impossible. People just the, the the documents will just stay wherever they they are are being preserved, be it over at Scotland Yard in the Black Museum or uh, or the Crime Museum, as it must now be called. But uh, isn't I mean I would think there would be some merit to having it all centralized as one thing. I mean I realize that like you know the Holocaust museums that are everywhere and. I just, uh, I think it would be an interesting idea, rather than having some in the crime museum, the black museum, whatever, um, to bring it together as one place. I doubt that it will ever happen, but... I think it would be, I think it would be great. Uh, and, and it would be wonderful to have, uh, have it as a, a, as a repository for people to be able to go and, and look at this stuff, because one of the things that's missing from the exhibition, of course, is the, is the Swanson Marginalia, because apparently the crime museum, uh, wouldn't or couldn't or wasn't asked or whatever to 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 uh, to have lend it to 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 go on show, which is is a pity. But uh, so it'd be great um, uh, for all this stuff to be to be visible to to people to be able to go in and look at it. And I and I think you're right; it should be. But whether ever it will be, I don't know. It's all down to um, that the subject. I mean, I, th I think the subject is, tends to be a little bit tacky. Uh, or if, I don't think it's tacky, but it's viewed as being being a bit tacky. We don't really want to get involved with that. So um, I don't know whether the council or anybody would think in terms of setting up a museum. Yeah, I guess it is going to suffer from that same affliction that I'll do with the Jack the Ripper affliction. Yeah, it's um, yeah. I'm, I'm, it's I I I was worried at one point. I. I I got seriously worried because the book that accompanies the the exhibition, and I, and I want to stress that I think the exhibition is great. It's the book that I I would have um, a beef with. Uh, is is that you know it's called Jack the Ripper and the East End, and the jacket has got Jack the Ripper in inch high letters, and is dominated by an iconic image of the the top hatted Ripper. And if I go out and I spend £25, and I did actually go out and spend £25 on a book that's called Jack the Ripper in the East End and it has inch-high letters and so on and so forth, I kind of expect to at least find a chapter in the book on Jack the Ripper. And this one doesn't have one. Uh, and also the first mistake is within the first seven lines of Peter Ackroyd's introduction. So you come away from looking at the book and I, I thought, well, this, this, is, this isn't very good. This looks as if they're using Jack the Ripper reluctantly using Jack the Ripper because they know it's going to draw in the crowds but really they want to do an exhibition in a book about the East End of London which probably wouldn't be anywhere near as popular and that was the feeling that I got from the book and I, and I was seriously I went along to the exhibition with a very very jaundiced eye thinking this is that that's what it was going to be about and I came away being very pleasantly surprised so I was quite happy with that I'm back to your book and, and some of the comments you made earlier, um, the, your book, The Facts, um, on your opinion of Anderson and Swanson. Um, in your book, you called Anderson self-satisfied, opinionated, eccentric, and a man of many contradictions. And you also went on to point out many of the conflicts between Swanson's marginalia and what appeared in Anderson's um, book um 
when you have two high-ranking police officials that s- seemingly uh, uh, that, that don't quite make the case for for the suspect that they name, I mean, um, ha- ha- why do you still believe that um, that that Anderson and Swanson um, sh- are the ones who are um, in the best position to know? If that makes any sense. Right. Um, well, Anderson is head of the CID. Swanson is the man who was given overall responsibility for the investigation. Now, obviously, um, there could be a, a, a Bobby on the beat who would think, oh, well, you know, Joe Bloggs down at the bottom, that he's really strange, and I think he's Jack the Ripper. And it may well turn out that the Bobby on the beat uh, was perfectly correct. We wouldn't know that, of course, but um, that could turn out. So the Bobby on the beat would have far more experience of the the small area that he was responsible for than would anybody else. And then you go up the ranks until you get to Aberline. Well, he was he was largely responsible for the investigation in the East End itself. So because that's where he'd uh, spent most of his career and uh, and and uh, was known and, and it was an area that he knew. And so he would have known all of that. But when you start to get up to Anderson's level, and, and particularly Swanson's level, they would have had all the information coming into them from from all over, uh, f- from every police division. They'd have had all the city information coming to them. They'd have had all the provincial information from the pro- provincial forces. They would have been uh, in direct contact with all the, the, the foreign stuff that would have been coming in. So they, they would have had a lot of information. And also, um, Anderson, albeit in... in a, Pracy terms would have would have had the basic details about all the leading suspects. So if Anderson actually uh, thought the evidence against Kosminski was stronger than the evidence against anybody else, then I think we have to give some credence to that. Obviously, we have to take into account Anderson's personality and character. <clears throat> but in addition to all of that, um, we tend to make kind of assumptions when we refer to Kosminski as Anderson's suspect. We don't know that he was Anderson's suspect. Um, Swanson, in f- uh, sorry, McNaughton, in fact, refers to him uh, in, in one of the versions of the memoranda as an individual against whom the police had um, very real suspicions or whatever, the, the, the precise phrases that seems to have just flown out of my memory. Um, so, I mean, he, he could be a, a a police suspect, Sus- you know, that by which I mean suspected by other policemen. The fact that they don't appear to have known about the identification is curious, but nevertheless, um, uh, this guy may not have been, been Anderson's suspect. It's it just one of several suspects who comes within his ken. He knows about an identification parade that seems to have taken place. Hardly anybody else does. We don't know why. So, um, yeah, go on. Yeah. Uh, um, both uh, McNaughton and, and Swanson uh, name Kosminski, uh, mm. but they don't give him a first name. They just they just give him a surname, uh, Kosminski, yeah. and it's generally assumed that he's Aaron Kosminski because that's the only Kosminski that uh, is found in the asylum records. And I was wondering, is is it possible that Kosminski is not Aaron Kosminski? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's there's a lot of uh, problems with uh, with Aaron Kosminski. 
one of which, uh, which I, I point out quite often, uh, is, is the fact that um, there is no real reason to suppose that the identification uh, was separated from the committal by any great distance uh, or length of time. So we're looking at, in a way, we're looking at Kosminski having been identified in late 1890 or early 1891, then being released into the, into the uh, care of his brother, whereupon a family have him very soon afterwards. He's committed. Now, we know what he, state of mind he was in when he was committed, wandering the streets and picking food out of the gutter and hearing voices and, and so forth. Now, why, well, when Anderson is, is, is talking we're, we're, and, and Swanson, we're told that the suspect, that the, sorry, we're told that the witness um, refused to give evidence because he knew that, uh, that, that his evidence would result in, in the suspect being hanged. Now, there's no way that, that Kosminski in 1891 would have been hanged. He was just, he, would, he was insane. He would have been sent to an asylum. He was manifestly insane. There was no doubt about it. The best that could conceivably have happened is that he would have been brought up before the magistrates uh, who would automatically have had him examined by, by medical men and certified just in the same way as happened to David Cohen. And then he would have been put away. He'd never, never have been, probably never even have been brought to trial. Uh, so the, the reaction and the belief of the uh, witness seems really odd if... Aaron Kosminski was the suspect, so there's, you know, you can you can therefore say, well, it, it can't have been Aaron Kosminski then, so therefore Kosminski has got to be somebody else. But, but um, Anderson um, altered that uh, caged in an asylum um, identification for his book. Um, would so would that maybe sh show that the identification could have been made um, before he was certified? A lunatic, oh, or no? Swanson says that he he was uh, that that's what happened because if you remember, uh, Swanson basically says that the the police with great difficulty took the the suspect off for identification where he right. was identified. The witness refuses to testify, um, so they release him into the care of his of his brother, where he's watched uh, uh, around the clock by the the city CID again. Right. Question not why, uh, but so. Anderson, uh, so, so Swanson is, is, is definitely saying that the, um, uh, that the identification took place before the suspect was commit committed. And I think the emphasis that Anderson places upon the witness, who he clearly seems to blame for them not having been able to proceed with, uh, with a case against, uh, with their case against the, the, the suspect, uh, Again, the, the witness's refusal to testify or otherwise would have largely been irrelevant. Well, it would have been irrelevant if, if the suspect was already committed because they wouldn't have then brought him to trial anyway. So I think uh, that original thing, you know, about the, the identification taking place in, in the asylum is, is almost certainly uh, wrong. And so we, we have to look at this, uh, the identification having taken place before. Now, now you want, now you once suggested that um, Levy uh, was possibly the witness in in the seaside home identification. Uh, uh, no, I, I, do you I actually. Sorry, go on. Uh, no, go ahead. Like if if, I, I if you didn't say, say I, it, I, or 
I uh, I didn't actually say that. What I what I discovered was that uh, Joseph Hyam Levy was uh, a signatory on the naturalisation papers of Uncle Martin Kosminski, and I and I just uh, suggested that uh, Martin Kosminski, if Martin Kosminski and 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 the Aaron Kosminski families were were known to one another, then it may well be that Joseph Hyam Levy would have known Aaron Kosminski or whoever, and. Uh, might have uh, might have recognised him and and then been the witness, but I I didn't sort of really uh, right put Levy forward as a uh, you know as a uh, as a as a <laughs> really as a viable candidate. Yeah, I mean uh, he behaved a little oddly, and you could make you can make a case for him, uh, which I probably did, but I I don't think I was literally. Putting him forward as uh, as the witness because I've always thought that the witness was probably Schwartz, um, which basically answers my next question. Go ahead, Jonathan. No, you. Well, if you would like him to elaborate on that one, Robert, go ahead and ask it. Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask. Like, uh, why do you believe that uh, Schwartz was uh, the witness? Well, first of all, um, Anderson describes the witness as the only person who had a good view of the murderer. Uh, and uh, as much as I hate sort of looking and, and taking words uh, quite absolutely literally, um, the, the, I just don't think that that could apply to, to, to a chap who was seen standing talking to Eddowes. I mean, there's just all, all, all the vendor and that group saw was a man and a woman standing together at the entrance uh, to Mitre Square. That seems a little... <coughs> You know, you can't really describe him as the murderer. Although, of course, if Anderson had already made up his mind that the uh, that, that the man scene was the murderer, then that would, you know, that, that my, my comment there just uh, is totally meaningless. And um, it, if if they had used lavender, wouldn't the city of uh, city police wouldn't they have had to inform them? Well, yes. I mean, that's another aspect of all of this. You 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 take away. I mean, it's, it all gets really kind of complicated, but yes, the city police are investigating a city crime, which would be the murder of Catherine Eddowes. And if Lavender had been um, the witness, then she would have been the witness to the murder of Eddowes, and that would have been made him a witness to a city crime. You would then have to prove that he was also responsible for the other murders in, in the Met area. So I... And, and also the city CID were presumably had Kosminski or whoever it was under surveillance anyway, so wouldn't they have brought Lavender in to, to identify him and all that sort of stuff? It just gets a bit iffy. But I, I just felt that uh, the most likely witness was Schwartz, who saw or claimed, at least claims to have seen, a man physically assault a woman whom he identified as Elizabeth Stride um, right outside the place where her body was... Uh, was discovered a little while later. The chances of Stride actually having been murdered by somebody other than that man uh, is probably remote. By no means impossible, but but probably remote. It seems a, a, a too much of a coincidence. So, I, and I think that that fits Anderson's description. But of course, the the whole thing is is that Lavender was uh, brought in in 1891 to to try and identify Thomas Sadler. Now, Sadler yeah. was identified uh, a couple of weeks after Aaron Kosminski was committed 
So, in other words, Aaron Kosminski would have been positively identified by a witness several weeks, at least several weeks, before Lavender was brought to identify uh, uh, Sadler. So, I mean, I can't imagine. Obviously, they wouldn't have asked Lavender to identify Sadler if uh, if he'd already just positively identified uh, Kosminski. What are they going to do? Go up to him and say, oh, excuse me, Mr. Lavender, uh, uh, I know that a couple of weeks ago you said that uh, that Polish Jew was Jack the Ripper, but we've got this other guy now, and do you think you could just come along and uh, and see if he was the one? I mean, they, that just doesn't, they just don't do it that way. At least I right. seriously hope they don't do it that way, in which case the fact that Lavender was brought in to identify Sadler would write him out straight away as being the, as far as I'm aware anyway, I mean, somebody may come up and say, oh, no, 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 no. They used uh, witnesses who made positive identifications to brought them in in further identification parades and so forth, in which case I will stand corrected, but just right now I think that it does write him out. Um, another, another, uh, oh, do, oh, sorry. another um, issue that comes up with the Swanson marginalia is him referring to Kosminski being um, going into the Stepney workhouse. And we know from the records that um, Kosminski spent a couple times in the Mile End workhouse. And um, when um, both, well, to Martin Fido, for instance, in his book, The Crimes Detection and Death of De- Jack the Ripper, makes the point that there was no workhouse called the Stepany workhouse. In fact, Stepany um, encompassed, um, you know, a good half dozen different workhouses. Um, all having, you know, different names. There was the Mile End Workhouse, there was the Lime House, Ratcliffe, um, St. Leonard's Street Workhouse, which is sometimes referred to as the Stepany Union Workhouse. Um, and in your book, The Facts, um, you uh, posit that Swanson um, meant the Mile End Workhouse when, or could have meant the Mile End Workhouse when he referred to it as the Stepany Workhouse. Could, would you like to elaborate on any of that? Well, basically, um, all I was uh, try, all I was trying to, to do there was to just to make a, a, an observation which I thought should be made. Um, if, uh, after all, if, if Aaron, if, and I'm going to emphasize it, if Aaron Kosminski was Kosminski, um, then Swanson obviously made a mistake. Um, and it seems to me that it's only right to suggest a plausible explanation for that mistake. Now, of course, uh, I mean, if, if Swanson didn't make a mistake, uh, and, uh, and um, uh, I mean, we, we, it can be argued that the, the marginalia is a fake, and it can be argued that uh, that Aaron Kosminski wasn't Kosminski and, and so on and so forth and that, that's all perfectly justified but as I said if Aaron Kosminski was Kosminski then Swanson made a mistake and one has to try and find or see if there are any plausible explanations for that and one without really looking for it I mean the, the fact is is that by 1910 Mile End Old Town had been absorbed by the borough of Stepney it was at that point part of Stepney and so I don't know uh, it just seems worthwhile making the point that maybe Swanson uh, said Stepney Workhouse because at that 
time Mile End Old Town Workhouse was in the borough of Stepney. It's not, not a big deal. It's just, it's, I'm not trying to say that this is an explanation for Swanson, and I, and I would have hoped that that would have come across in the book. I'm just having, um, having, do, uh, having done a fairly lengthy uh, analysis of, of all the evidence pro and con for, for Kosminski. I listed um, a number of the issues which, uh, or things that Swanson says that don't fit Aaron Kosminski, and, and you know, you you just throw in a possible explanation, right? In that um, Stepney workhouse could have been used as a catch-all phrase to encompass the the uh, system of workhouses located in that borough, as opposed to trying. Right. To no, I mean just 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 saying that 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 Mile End Old Town, because you you get these different uh, different areas, and they it's like it's now all Tower Hamlets, for example. I mean that. Tower Hamlets was a, a small area at one stage, and so so on. It, it, they expand, they absorb areas. I'm, all I'm saying is that um, in 1910, Mile End Old Town was part of Stepney. It was so. You know, he, he could have uh, referred to it as Stepney Workout because that that whole area uh, was that just just as as today I might refer to, I don't know, Whitechapel being in in Tower Hamlets because it is it wasn't back then but it is now and, and you know it, Mile End Old Town wasn't in Stepney in, in 1891 but it, it was by 1910 it's just a, just a throwaway observation a, a great thing to be read into it um, where do you stand on the Canonical Five um, as the only victims of a single killer um, I don't really, um, because, uh, as I said at, at, at one stage, um, Elizabeth Stride, um, for example, I mean, Schwartz could have seen Elizabeth Stride being murdered by Kosminski, and Stride not have been a, a, a victim of Jack the Ripper, in which case, um, the whole Anderson thing as far as Jack the Ripper is concerned, goes out the window. So I, I don't necessarily think that they were all victims of Jack the Ripper. I think the canonical five is a good catch-all term for the, the crimes which I would include Tabram in that group, which um, were responsible for what, for a better word or term, uh, was the Autumn of Terror. That's, that's what focused those, those five or six women, uh, the murder of those five or six women, focused all the, the, the press attention and, and everything else and created the mystery that we have today. Um, that's ba basically my, my view on it. That I, I don't necessarily see that uh, there's a, a big issue about calling them the canonical five or the canonical six or whatever. Right. So you basically see them as a symbol rather than necessarily victims of the same hand? Yes. Yes. I mean, I'm, in saying that, I, I'm not saying that I don't see them as victims of the same hand, and I'm not saying that I do see them as victims of the same hand. What I'm saying is, is that as far as, as you say, yes, that they, they represent what, what uh, caused the autumn of terror and, and, and really what all the interest is. 
we're, you can't take any one of those crimes out of that. It, the, the, the double event really is the apotheosis of horror that, that uh, those crimes created, and, and that the murder of Stride was just as much a, a part of creating that, that fear and terror as, as was the murder of Eddowes. And so they both, I mean, what's the point in trying to divorce them? It's only when you start to analyze the victimology, if you like, and the, or whatever the term is, but, but start looking at the, uh, to see whether or not they were all killed by the same hand, that that becomes important. But overall, I mean, it all contributed to the, to the fear. I have, I have an sort of off-topic question, but it was just something that struck me as I listened to your answer. You don't come down on one side or the other on Kuzminski. Um, it's more of a generalization. You don't come down on one side or the other as far as the victimology of the canonical five. Give us one absolute in Jack the Ripper as you see it. One, un, you know, one totally certain <laughs> principle that you believe in so far as Jack the Ripper. I knew that if there was going to be one really tough question here, it was going to come from you. I, <laughs> I, I sensed that. Um, I don't know. I, I, you'll have to give me time to think about that. I, I, you know, we'll th come th back there, at the end for the follow-up. Yeah, there, there were, there were, there, there were you know, a series of murders in the East End of 1888, and that, that's about as much as we, we can say with absolute total certainty. Um. Paul, when you uh, updated the facts, uh, you were also working on another book, another Jack the Ripper book, The Definitive History, which we really haven't uh, discussed, uh, which is rather different than the facts. It sort of takes a, a social history of, in view of London's East End, and I suppose there's only about a third of the book uh, devoted to the murders, and, and you don't really uh, discuss uh, suspects out, really outside of the police suspects that much, as, as you've covered all of that in the facts, but I was wondering why the two books, why, why you just didn't incorporate it in one book, like, why you felt you needed to do two. Well, I think that the, uh, <laughs> well, I was asked to do the, to do the definitive anyway, um, which is, is probably um, a good enough answer. Truthfully, I had always envisaged uh, something like a, a kind of Jack the Ripper trilogy. Uh, I wanted to do, and it and it never worked out that I was able to do it one by one, and I, and I probably wouldn't have been able to because I don't think I would initially have known enough when I did the uncensored facts to have been able to do anything like the definitive history. But I, people often say to you, you know, why does Jack the Ripper cause such interest today, and and things like that, and and the answer to that basically is is threefold, and you you have to look at why the Ripper murders caused such a, such a sensation at the time. And that's really what the definitive history was uh, trying to answer. It was, it, and, and, and in very simple terms, um, lots and lots of different things had happened to focus attention on the East End of London so that the stage was primed and ready and waiting for Jack the Ripper to walk onto it. And, and uh, Jack the Ripper uh, came to embody all the fears that were going on in the 1880s because it's it's not generally realized that just just how frightening a decade the 1880s were because um, there was a hell of a lot of, of, of social change going on and today we're quite used to all of that we're, we're used to change happening very rapidly indeed and we, we tend to kind of absorb that but back then change was not that um, 
common. And so lots of things were happening in the 1880s. They were talking, yeah, because you had Josephine Butler, you had, you had people talking about, about prostitutes openly. I mean, pr prior to that, it hadn't really been much of, a, of, a, of an area for discussion. And you had um, sort of uh, the Salvation Army cropping up. You had, you had concerns about, about homelessness, poverty, and so on and so forth. So there are lots and lots of things. And most of all, the unemployed were beginning to flex their muscles a bit through unionization and marches such as the one in 1887 on Trafalgar Square. And a lot of those marches began from the East End of London. So again, all of these things tended to focus attention on the East End. And as I say, as Jack the Ripper walked onto that stage, it was all ready for him. And virtually the whole press were able to grab hold of Jack the Ripper and use him to bludgeon whoever they wanted to. Like the Telegraph was bludgeoning, bludgeoning um, uh, the Home Secretary and other newspapers were, were having a go at the, the police and so forth. And, I, and that's what really turned the, the Ripper in, into the sensation. And I wanted to, to put that in, in a book and then have the facts and then have a book that maybe looks, uh, looks at, uh, at what happened after the, the year of 1888. And that way you cover the whole, whole spectrum. So and, that, and another does that answer that question? Robert? Oh, no, go ahead, Jonathan. Like That, that answers the question. Um, another uh, book that you have participated in writing is Jack the Ripper A to Z. Um, now, we talked to Martin a few weeks ago and um, about the new edition of the book that's coming out, and he um, said that you had a more limited role um, in putting together this uh, new version of the A to Z. Um, could you uh, describe to us uh, what your role in the, this one um, was and, um, and kind of give us an idea that we know that there's going to be taking out of the old material and in, in the insertion of a lot of new material. Could you kind of give us an idea of um, how that's going to appear? Yeah, um, my I didn't play uh, a, as big a part in the production of the book uh, as I have done in the past, largely because I developed a. Uh, as, as most of you know, I, I've uh, I've got a heart problem and um, had to have a, a bypass a little while ago, and it was a recurrence of that. And I had to go back into hospital again for. Uh, uh, for another, not another bypass, but another um, angio thingy. Um, and so I was kind of, to, unfortunately, taken out of the loop whilst I was waiting to go in and uh, after I'd come out. So um, that's kind of changing a little bit now because because of the delay in, in publication, we're, we're still updating. So I tend to be doing all that updating work now as, as we go along. And, uh, and Martin is uh, taking the back seat a little so <laughs> a kind of reversal of roles but um, as far as the the update is uh, is concerned it's the last one was 10 years ago so a hell of a lot of things have happened in the course of the last 10 years that we needed to incorporate in the book and we also wanted basically to rewrite the whole thing uh, to make some corrections to, to to errors that creep in I mean try, the subject is so vast that it is physically impossible to, to, to escape making errors. Um, just, it, you know, even with three people working on it, it's, 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 it's difficult. And of course, the first thing that you see when the, when the book hits the sh bookshops is you open it and you see glaring errors on, 
every page that you come to. But um, we've rewritten it. It's been completely rewritten. We've rewritten uh, practically. I, I would say we've, we're supposed to have rewritten every entry, and I think we probably have. Uh, we've had to we've had to take out um, all the fiction and the films and all that sort of stuff, and we have had to take out uh, the personal entries for everybody who's still alive. Uh, so you only get a personal entry now um, by uh, being dead, and that was that was tough. But when we first did the book. Um, the internet didn't exist. There were, I don't think there were any of the magazines around, and um, and that the number of books being published weren't that many. So you could basically give uh, an entry to almost anybody who'd written on the on the subject. But of course, these days now that that is physically impossible, and it would be nightmarish to actually start trying to determine who has made a contribution worthy of entry and, and who hasn't and so we thought it best just to um, take out everybody who, who wasn't dead we even discussed taking out the people who were dead but realised that we, <laughs> we couldn't actually do that <laughs> it was just that made a nightmare of complexity then but uh, yeah so it's, it's thoroughly revised and I'm, I mean I hope we've corrected a number of the, uh, the mistakes that have been made in other editions, previous editions, but no doubt there will be some that have crept in. Now, a prior publishing deal for the new edition had fallen through, and as you're waiting for a new publisher, you're continuing, until this day, you're still um, tinkering with different aspects of the book. Oh, yeah. I mean, every time something comes up that uh, uh, that that is new or different or... I mean, all the articles that are being published in, in Ripperologist and, and elsewhere and and everything. Um, the Docklands exhibition, for example, uh, we were aware of it uh, and, in fact, had, had been cons- were consultants to it uh, um, two years ago, but we didn't uh, didn't have an entry for it. So, because uh, it obviously, I mean, it didn't exist at that time, so we had no, didn't really know what we could put in. And and there are just loads of new books coming out. And I mean, I'm just hoping that we we there uh, R. Michael Gordon and Dave Yost have got two coming out shortly from McFarland, and I'm I'm waiting for those those books to to appear. So hopefully we can include uh, those books as well. And, and of course every every new book, if there's some new insight into one of the suspects or the victims or whatever. Uh, where, which requires a cross-reference, then you've got to readjust that entry as well, and, and you know it can take it, it can take an uh, inordinate amount of time to to, to actually uh, add in just just little little details to that, uh, to, to all these different entries. When you're writing so something, oh, sorry, <laughs> when you're writing sorry. something like the A to Z or something of that nature, you're essentially making judgments or. Uh, you know, judgments really on your peers, your colleagues, your coworkers, people you know in the community. Has that been a problem for you? And how have you addressed those sorts of conflicting emotions? I know, for example, if I were writing an A to Z, I'd be prone to be very favorable about you know certain people, and uh, and less favorable towards others based on nothing factual necessarily, but just my own opinion. How do you war the need of personal opinion versus? actual fact 
It's it's not actually as difficult as it seems because apart from anything else, there are three authors, and so and and contrary to to expectation, um, Martin Keith and myself, we are we are quite different people, and so uh, you know how you sometimes read about um, you know comedy duos and they they really hate each other in real life. Well, we don't hate each other in real life. We're all all great friends, but. We are different people, and we have different interests, and we like different things, and and we are affected in different ways by uh, by, by things that happen to us. And, and so, uh, if I decided that I really didn't like Jonathan and and wanted to put something into the into the A to Z about about Jonathan, then Keith and Martin would undoubtedly block me. And uh, and so I wouldn't be allowed to do that. We we have a very strict voting system uh, where uh, if Keith and Martin disagree about something, then it's up to me to do to 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 resolve the dispute, and I will come down on one side or the other, and and we quite amicably amicably accept, uh, or sometimes not that amicably accept the 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 the, the judgment of the other two. So really, it it, it isn't a problem, and and. Um, and there aren't that very many instances where you have to be judgmental. I, I think, um, especially now that we're not putting in living authors, you, you, uh, you're, you're not judgmental of, of, of people who are going to care all that much and, and come after you with a baseball bat. So it's not a, not a major issue. There, I mean, there have been a couple of, of famous cases where we have said something that... Uh, People have disagreed with, which you know is 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 difficult. But um, but generally speaking, I, I I would hope that we don't come down too judgmental on people. We we had a stock phrase I think about certain books that we thought were um, were quite not uh, not that reliable, which we said should be treated with caution. Um, and I think that's fair enough. And, and and oddly enough, most of the people that we've said that about agree. And, and accept accept it as a as a fair and, and unbiased judgment, which is basically what we try to be throughout the book. Now, people uh, such as myself have been waiting for an update of uh, the A to Z, and you know, actually, I've been waiting for uh, other things as well. I've been waiting for Whittington Egan's Quest for Jack the Ripper, which has been in the works for about a decade, and I'd also like to see maybe uh, Alexander Kelly's. Bibliography and review of the literature updated. Although I don't know how practical that would be in book form. Um, are, are there any titles that you would like to see uh, updated or? Um, I don't know that there, there's titles I'd like to see updated. I and I, I there are titles that I I would like to see more uh, widely available. Um, if I had the the money, I wouldn't mind reprinting. Things like Matters and William Stewart and um, Robin O'Dell's book, which I, I, I understand that Robin's book is actually going to be reprinted by by Mandrake uh, at some point, but I'm and I'm waiting for that one to come out as well. Um, but um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see. I I I was very impressed with uh, with Philip Hutchinson's uh, book with all those new pictures in it. I'd I'd love to. Uh, to see a, a a big fat huge book come out with all the illustrations in and and, um, and all the drawings and everything else, so that you can you could see over a couple of pages every picture of, of Burner Street or whatever 
that would be fun, but I can't can't uh, I can't imagine anybody <laughs> being able to ever do it or a publisher uh, willing to make that kind of commitment to the to that sort of book. One of the uh, most mainstream popular books come out in the last decade or so has been Patricia Cornwell, um, Case Closed. <coughs> Since she's a living author, I take it she's not going to get her own entry in the new A to Z. But nevertheless, um, what were your first impressions of the book when you read it, when it came out? And what can you tell us about um, what may be going on with um, Patricia Cornwell and Keith Skinner's collaboration to come out with a new edition of that book? Um, <laughs> uh, I didn't... I, I must admit, I didn't feel the, 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 the venom uh, for, for Patricia Cornwell's book that that uh, seems to, to, to everybody else seems to have felt and um, uh, I, it's difficult because I don't over here Patricia Cornwell isn't or doesn't appear to be the celebrity that she seems to be in America I mean she I, I get the feeling that she's a much bigger name in America than she is here um, not that I wish to point out that by that by the way that she, she's not a big seller bookseller here she is not not kind of a TV celeb, and so uh, you know I, I I don't know what to I don't know what I thought of the book really. It was just, as far as I was concerned, it was just a suspect book, just another suspect book, and uh, I didn't think that it made made the case for Sickett, but it was interesting, and she came up with a couple of bits and pieces that, if they panned out, uh, I thought you know would be interesting. So I I, I don't really pay the book a great deal of attention um, to be honest uh, as I say it was just, just a suspect book as for, for now I, I do very strongly feel that uh, as, as I've been saying in a few places uh, that we ought to cut her some slack because she I was at, uh, at a dinner at Scotland Yard that she was the guest of honour at and um, she was she came across to me as uh, as as a quite a likable person. And she was she was she was open. She she was frank. She she didn't uh, didn't seem the arrogant person that uh, that that everybody says she is. Um, and she said at that time that she acknowledged that she'd made mistakes. She said that she wasn't going to call the the new edition case closed, and she was very emphatic about that. Uh, and she she talked about how Keith had, and she had got together and and, um, uh, and and what it was like working with Keith and and um, and so forth and I, and and I got the impression I mean Keith tends to to be he doesn't shrink from confrontation too much uh, and so he does stand up if he thinks that something's wrong he'll stand up and say so and he he, he will he will tell tell you, I've, I've, he worked with Feldman for a long time, and uh, I mean, Feldy, at times, I described him as a steamroller, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people, if a steamroller's coming at me, I, I kind of get out of the way, and um, uh, Keith just stands there and, 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 <laughs> and argues his case, and he, he doesn't, doesn't seem, so, so I, I have no doubts that uh, Keith will be... Uh, uh, if, if he doesn't think that Patricia Cornwell is is 
you're saying the right thing or reaching the right conclusion. I've no doubt that Keith will tell her straight straight to her face. And, and Patricia struck me as the kind of person who would accept it. I think she's uh, she came across as as a vulnerable but uh, quite gutsy lady to me. And I but but as far as what they're doing, that's something that I I I I, I know nothing. Uh, I'm going to have to disagree with you on the gutsy part because to me it seems like the average ripperologist, uh, you know, uh, you, Stephen Ryder, anyone, can't go on primetime television, Dateline, primetime, like Patricia Cornwell did, and on those nationally well-established news um, networks that you or I have no chance of getting on whatsoever, she slandered a large portion of... Ripperology, while doing the exact same thing herself, making money off of Jack the Ripper. Um, you know, the one, of course, that strikes near and dear to my heart is saying such things as just because you run a website doesn't mean you know anything about Jack the Ripper. And she mm. used a national forum to slander, degrade, um, and disparage a large group of people. And we don't have a national forum to defend ourselves against in. We don't have the kind of access that she has. We can't refute those charges. And for her to say at a small closed dinner in her honor, which is another thing we don't really have access to, but for her to say in a small group setting, oh, well, yes, I made mistakes, that to me doesn't mitigate the fact that she went in front of a national audience and made those mistakes, made those judgments against us as a group, against specific people as a group. And so I just have to wonder, um, it's very easy to apologize for something when, you know, there, you know, it's very easy to, to say, oh, I'm sorry to a small group of people, but she said those remarks to an entire nation, uh, the world, an international mm. world. And to say, oh, at a small dinner, well, I've made some mistakes, that doesn't seem to me to be sufficiently, it doesn't mitigate it enough for me to say, okay, well, I'll give her a second chance. I've never heard her make those remarks. I, I mean, I, I completely believe you that she did make those remarks, but I heard with my own ears the disparagement and I would like to hear with my own ears or read with my own eyes the apology before I'm willing to say, okay, I'll give you a second chance. And if she does do that, then I'm perfectly willing to give her a second chance. But a sort of secondhand apology that I hear about through third-party people, no, that doesn't cut it for me. I want that direct apology. And I'm just wondering if that's sort of, you heard the direct apology, so you're willing to give her a second chance, or, or, or you didn't hear the original remarks, because I know Primetime's an American show, I don't know if it transfers. So I'm just wondering if that sort of plays into the overall dynamic of it as well. I, it's difficult, I, I, I honestly, I honestly don't know how to answer all of that, because I understand where you're coming from completely. And I did an editorial uh, for Ripperologist back in whenever, 2002 or something, in which I um, made a comparison of, of things that Patricia Cornwall had said and so forth, and, and a lot of the remarks that, that were made by her critics. And I, I must admit that I came across feeling that a lot of the criticism that we had here um, was directed at Patricia Cornwall personally, and so they were picking up on, uh, you know, 
character and personality traits and they, they were calling her names and they were doing all of that. And there was one point where she made a reference to the fact that uh, FBI people had, um, had warned her that Ripperologists were lying in wait for her in England. And I thought that utterly bizarre because I would have thought that the FBI would have been concerned with, the, uh, with, with, with a bit more than what Ripperologists think and do. It was kind of strange to think of us being put on a, on a kind of uh, terrorist list. Um, but Patricia Cornwall appears to have believed that, and when she came across uh, here and um, did a television program here, and she was... Uh, uh, um, she, there, there were a lot of ripperologists were invited to go along to this thing. She came across with... I, I gather that she came across with with uh, bodyguards. So, and she certainly didn't appear. We were all there for about an hour beforehand, uh, chatting and, and everything before we went into this, uh, in, into the studio to, uh, to meet with her. And she never appeared for anything like that. So I, as far as I'm aware, I mean, that, that, that is possibly true. For, for right or for wrong, she obviously, was obviously fed some information that... Uh, caused a concern. Now, I don't know how much of what she said about ripperologists in the States was based on this information that she apparently got from the FBI. It all was prior. Can... Right. This was right when her book came out. So all of this was prior to the alleged um, incident where the FBI told her that ripperologists right. were lying in wait for her. So this was all right at the initial outset. So I, I, I just I, I don't know what the, uh, the the ins and outs of all of that are, and if I ever get the chance to 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 meet and sit down with Patricia for any length of time, I, I will I will try and ask and find out. All I know now is that uh, she's 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 uh, hired Keith to to help with the research and uh, and so forth. I don't know whether the book is go her book, re revised edition is going to be significantly different from. Uh, the one that went before, I don't know. I don't know what Keith really is is doing for her. Um, I don't really have much of a snippet of information that comes from Keith because he just. I mean, he did a book once, and I didn't even know the book existed. And I don't think he's ever mentioned it to me at any time uh, that that he did with with the uh, curator of the Black Museum. So, uh, you know, he's 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 a fairly tight-lipped character, and but I don't know. I'd, I. I think that she's probably, um, yeah, I'm, I'm prepared to give, I just, I think what it is basically, Ali, is, is that I really just don't like, I don't, I don't like the insults that she made to, 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 to about ripperologists, I don't like the remarks that ripperologists and, uh, uh, and uh, the art critics made about her, it, I would just prefer her book to be judged on its merits and and on the the edition that we've got now at the moment, where we we pretty much know how we judge it. And I just don't like all this insult stuff. I, I, I don't really want to see her being called cornball on the on the internet or anything like that. It it's it that's just not me. It's it's just the way I, I'm not I'm not that way. I I just don't like that sort of stuff. I guess. And if if anything, then I'm just coming out with a a kind of personal thing there is, is is that it's it's just something that I'm not that fond of I can't keep saying the same thing over and over again here <laughs> I don't know where else to go I just I, I just don't I just don't like that 
I'd, I'd rather just uh, judge the book. Pa- you know. Yeah, and I think part of that would also be that whenever um, the object of your debate or your discussion, as, as I said, you know, Patricia Cornwell got to say her piece to a national audience and um, has never, you know, as far as I know, debated uh, a ripperologist for good or for bad or come to answer any questions that weren't very carefully screened or monitored. I think Chris George managed to call in once at a radio program and, and ask a question uh, that was was much kinder, of course, than and less specific than the one I would have asked. But I think that I don't agree with the cornball either. I think that's just that's a weak um, form of argument when you when you resort to it. But I think it just comes from that overwhelming sense of frustration that she used a national platform to insult us all and Mm. she refuses to present herself to be debated in an actual fashion and to stand up to hard questions about her theory um, in a public forum and I think if you're going to use a public forum to get your your point across then you ought to be answerable in a public forum if you're going to you know just sort of put your opinion out there in a way that nobody can debate you nobody can question you um, that's going to breed a lot of resentment um, if you have something to say be there and be accountable for it and be open to questions and when you don't allow that to happen then you, you know it just breeds that sort of vicious resentment that sort of expresses itself sometimes in some uh, not good ways. I just just respond to that by saying that I I think on one on the one hand I I get the feeling um, that Patricia Cornwell is a big name. She's a very wealthy lady. She's earned a lot of money from her book. She's an extremely popular author. Um, she gets these things thrown at her. Uh, it, it's kind of it's kind of a, a way that the number of television uh, or radio or other programs that that uh, that I do is probably more than the number that that um, Robert McLaughlin would do. Uh, and so, you know, it's it, it's it's sort of like. I'm not trying to suggest that Robin would be Robert would be envious of me for goodness sake. I'm, I'm digging a hole here, which I'm fighting to try and get out of. But Patricia is just that sort of bigger name thing, so she gets all that stuff thrown at her. It doesn't make her. It doesn't mean that she's necessarily better than anybody else, or or uh, or anything like that. It's it's just that you know she 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 has the name, she has the presence, and so she'll get that television production, which which uh, you and I won't. And and um, yeah, she shouldn't. It, she, it would perhaps have been better if she kept her mouth shut and didn't say those things. But I don't know why she said them. And um, I, I assume that there would have been reasons for it. Um, I don't know. I, I can't right. really say much more. Well, well uh, we are. Uh, you have one more thing to say, Ali? Or nope. I said that pretty much covers it. Okay, um, Robert. Oh yeah, you know me. I always have a last final question, and usually sure. has little to do with ripperology. You know me; it's something usually offbeat. Um, uh, Paul, you've been around for about three decades, and you've essentially known everybody in the ripper world. And I was just wondering, like, uh, you know, past or present, you know, if you if you're going out on the town, like, who's the best ripperologist to hang around with, to go out oh. with and have fun, fun time? <laughs> oh God. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Again, they're all different. I mean, uh, 
I mean, Stuart Evans is just... He, he can sit and just talk, and uh, and you just just sit and listen to him, and that, and that's that's good. I, I mean, he's not much of a drinking companion, uh, and so and, and so that that's Stuart out for a night out on the town. Um, I don't know. I I really don't know. Don Don is is, is good company. Um, Martin Keith. Uh, it's that that really is a, a, a tough one. I, I get on with Richard Jones. I've known Richard Jones for for two decades, um, and uh, he's a good one to go out for a, for a beer with. Um, yeah, you know, I, I I really don't know that. Every, everybody who writes on the Ripper just seems to generally be different. I, Robin O'Dell is just a a gentleman. Um, great, great great pleasure to be with it just make, makes you feel good um philip would probably take you to the best concerts yes yes now philip is actually quite good good company as well i mean, I mean he's uh he's uh he's a, a good uh he's a good listener no he's not actually he talks all the time um <laughs> well then i guess if you can't pick the best one you've already hung out with who would be the one you'd want to have the drink with that you haven't yet Oh gosh! Um, well, actually, the, the 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 one who I I I regret two that I regret not having met personally, and uh, Stephen Knight died before I was really involved in the field, so I I I wouldn't have met him, but I would love to have uh, got his autograph in a in a copy of the book. Uh, and the other one was Donald McCormick, and I and I did have a chance to 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 meet Donald McCormick. On a couple of occasions, and um, I never, never managed to to get there, and and so um, I think it, that those would be the two that I, I regret not having met. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to to meet uh, both Dan Farson and Tom Cullen, uh, and um, so yeah, I'd, I'd, McCormick would have been a. I'd love to. <laughs> Talk about you know facing somebody and asking them the hard questions uh, over a, over a beer. It would have been nice to have asked uh, Donald McCormick a few a few questions about uh, about his book. But um, so I don't share the general consensus of opinion that he was a total charlatan. I have a feeling that Donald McCormick uh, had been in the newspaper business for so long that he may well have uh, have got bits and pieces that. Uh, that haven't surfed yet. I'd just like to have known a bit more about all of that. All right. Well, Robert got the final question in, and we're about an hour and 20 minutes into it, so I'll wrap it up here. You've been listening to RipperCast, Episode 15, Paul Bag A to Z. With coming to us from Kent in the UK was Paul Bag. Thanks for being in the guest seat today, Paul. Thank you for being so gentle with me. That was uh, that's very generous of you. Well, it, it, <laughs> it was great fun. Also joining us were Ali Ryder and Robert McLaughlin. Thanks to you both for uh, being on the show today on such short notice. And um, it's Memorial Day weekend here in the United States, and so thanks to Ali for uh, taking time off of, from her beach-going activities to be on the show today. You owe me. Uh, okay. And Robert, thank you also. Yeah, always a pleasure. 
Our podcast is weekly and available via the iTunes Music Store and at our website, www.rippernet.com. Any questions or comments you may have should be directed at the RipperNet's email address at rippernet at mac.com. This week, we're also debuting our new format of mini-podcasts, the one-on-one episodes, in which a guest will sit in and discuss the case with only one of our co-hosts. So look for the first installment of that in your podcast feed um, here in the next day or two. You'll be pleasantly surprised. So until next week, this has been RipperCast, and thanks for listening. <laughs>